Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about how people in church should treat each other. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to make one announcement and ask for one favor. First, I want to tell you about our VBS. Every year our VBS reaches and impacts a lot of kids. This year it will be July 15th through 19th. And if you have kids in our area, please head to wilsonville.church VBS. There you can learn all of the details you'll need and you can register. You definitely won't regret having your child attend, I promise. The favor I want to ask is simple. If you find this podcast valuable, it would be great if you left us a rating and review. I know I've said this before, but leaving ratings and reviews helps this content be heard by more people. I know it sounds like a long shot, but helping more people hear this might change a life. Think about it. I mean, taking a minute to type a few words about how you've been impacted could literally impact another person for eternity. So please do that. Like I said, if you've been impacted by this podcast. Thanks again for taking time to listen. I really do hope this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Hey, I uh, probably wonder why I didn't mention this earlier, but today is Father's Day, and so I want to say happy Father's Day to myself and to all of you as well. Uh, my dad is actually homesick today, and, and so he was supposed to do the announcements at the beginning, and, and so he, uh, happy Father's Day if you're listening online, Dad. Um, but to all of you dads in this church, we appreciate you. Uh, we have some really good ones here, and and I know, you know, you may not see it, but uh, your kids can feel the impact that, that you've had on their lives. Uh, you know, I, I think the thing that I didn't understand before becoming a dad about being a dad is the sacrifice that it took, that it takes. I knew that, you know, we needed to be loving as a dad and we needed to kind of be there for our children and offer some, you know, age-old wisdom or whatever. But the sacrifice part is the part that, that w- I just don't think I understood before before I became a dad myself, and, and it's when you look back on your life that you can see the sacrifices that your dad, and, and as I said last week in, in a sermon about being like a family, uh, the sacrifices that your family make in general. Um, so first, fathers, we have a gift for you as you leave today. There's a, a devotional book, and we'd love for you to take one of those. It's about you know being a, a dad and a man and uh, all of those things, and so grab one of those, but when I think about the sacrifice that you know, my family and specifically my dad make, one of them is, uh, you know, it, it demonstrated their love for me so clearly, it demonstrated his love for me so clearly, is that he would go uh, to every one of my college baseball games. And so my family spent, you know, uh, uh, the better part of four years traveling to cities that nobody wants to go to, uh, like Lewiston, Idaho. Like, no, there's no reason to go to Lewiston, Idaho. I, I, Sorry if you're from there. Um, I see people looking like, hey, I like Lewiston, but it's, I don't know why. Um, and, uh, and, and so my dad, my family, they'd come to these games. And uh, one of the places we played that is a cool city is Vancouver, British Columbia. And we played against the University of British Columbia. It always felt like an unfair fight. They're the only college baseball team in the nation of Canada. Uh, 40,000 students, and we'd roll in there, 800 students at our school, and play against the University of British Columbia in freezing cold March Vancouver weather or whatever. Uh, And so after one of the games there uh, that I'm sure we never won in Canada, we beat that team, we never won in Canada. So after one of our losses there, I went out to eat with my family, left my teammates behind or whatever. They rode the bus back, and, uh, and we went to eat. 
iced tea in Canada is incredible. Had an iced tea. And then we were going to go back to the hotel. And I was with my grandma, my uncle, and my grandpa. And it seemed really easy. Like, you just get on this freeway, this highway, and then you, the hotel was literally, you could just see it off to the left of the highway. It was very simple simple thing to do, right? And, and, and so we start driving, and we're just like, well, we just need to get on this freeway. It's like just a really simple deal. Just get on the freeway. And, and we cannot, for the life of us, figure out how to get on the freeway. And we were on the opposite side of the hotel. We were staying in, in, outside of Vancouver to the south, and we were, we were stuck on on one side of the freeway, we could see the freeway, but we could not get to the other side, nor could we get on the highway. We didn't know how to get back to the hotel without being on the freeway. And I'm not kidding you, like we're in neighborhoods taking a left turn and we'd run into a wall, which we knew was the freeway. And so we'd cruise around a little more. And I don't think that, I don't know if GPS was even a thing that we were thinking about then. Now this wouldn't be a problem, but we'd drive around a little more and then we'd Look at the wall that, that made up the freeway. And it happened over and over and over. My, my grandma is a big worrier. If you know her at all, you already know that. So I'm not breaking any news. If you don't know her, then she'll forgive me for telling you. But like she's starting to freak out because we're like lost. We're getting in worse and worse neighborhoods. We're driving along the freeway, but we can't get onto the freeway. I mean, it is awful. And driving in Vancouver is awful in general. And so that's adding to the stress level. I actually looked. I was trying to find a picture of this. I couldn't find one. Like I was Googling like, are there on-ramps in Vancouver, Canada? And, and actually, it's interesting. Vancouver is ranked as Canada's worst city to drive in and apparently freeways are actually illegal in the city limits so that's probably why we didn't end up on the freeway in Vancouver and then we ended up on one side so finally I'm mad I'm mad that we can't get on the freeway I'm mad at my grandma because she's freaking out I'm probably mad at my grandpa for not saying anything and I'm probably mad at my uncle because he's the one driving and and it's like I just needed to be mad at everybody and so I think while the car is still moving a little bit in a neighborhood I see a guy cutting his lawn or something. Not a good neighborhood. I don't care if they shoot me at this point, though. I'm like, put me out of my misery. Let it be over. I can't be in the car with these people anymore. And, and I hop out of the car, and I say, how do we get on the freeway, you dirty Canadian? Something to that effect. <laughs> I didn't actually say that. I love you if you're Canadian. Uh, and and he, he tells us, and, and we get on the freeway. But, but as I was thinking about my, my sermon this week, that memory came back to me because today what we're going to talk about is the divider between, uh, really this is simple, ready? The divider between one, us, me, and one another. We're doing this series on the one another's of the New Testament and there's, there's this divider and I brought this to symbolize a divider. I, 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 my family lives in Kaiser and so we're down in the Salem area a lot and right now they're, they're redoing the freeway and so we've stared at a lot of these dividing the road, dividing us from people. I figured it was not a good financial decision to build a wall for this sermon. That's not a political statement at all but I thought it was not a good idea to build a wall but just, just go with this divider and this morning what we're going to talk about is, in fact, the thing, the thing that's like the wall that separates us from our hotel or the thing that divides us, that separates the difference between us being selfish, being driven by our own lives within the context of church, doing it all for us and doing it for others, doing it for 
one another. At this church, as was mentioned in Ashley's prayer, actually, uh, we talk a lot about spiritual loving connection. And what we mean by that is that we want connections in this church that go beyond, hey, we play softball together. We want connections that go beyond like, hey, let's talk about the Blazers or about the weather, or, you know, all of those things. We want connections that can be described as spiritual and loving. Uh, they are connections within our church. This is what we hope for. This is what we have many times. It, we want connections that can be described as spiritual. People have spiritual conversations. They don't just talk about the things that you can see and touch and do. They talk about the things of the soul, how our relationships are with God, how we're moving forward in our sanctification, and we want them to be loving. These are hard things to get to though, right? The norm is to show up even with people at church and, and just to do the normal kind of stuff. We talk about our families, we talk about the weather, we talk about the next holiday and all that stuff. And I think that the major divide, there's a separator between going into spiritual loving connection and just going to church and doing it for yourself and being an individual like everybody else. On one side you have isolation and loneliness and and disunity and selfishness and on the other side there's spiritual loving connection there's one another there's all of these things that I think we want in church and, and the divider is, is is a single word here it is ready ready waiting for it and here it is it's pride pride is the barrier between one and one another that's going to be the point of the sermon today pride is what separates us from being isolated and lonely and self-driven and this goal, this other, this other side where we are in it for each other and we're helping each other and we're connected and there's love and there's passion and there's unity. All of these things, passion for one another, all of those things. But Paul says this, man, what he writes in Romans, how he says this is so much better than a single sentence. And that's what we're going to look at today in Romans 12, mainly verse 16, but I'll start in 15. I mean, he says this in just a beautiful way. Listen to how it starts in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this, I think, just to make it a better divider illustration. Don't read this. I stole it from the school. But like on this side right here, you, you have, I'm in it for myself. When I go to church, I'm focused on what I get out of it. I'm probably lonely, even though I wouldn't admit that part. I don't really feel any connection to people at church. I don't allow people to connect with me. And, and on this side... In Paul's words, you have, I rejoice with those who rejoice, and I mourn with those who mourn. Is there any, any level, any higher level of unity than, than really feeling what somebody else feels because you care about them so deeply? I'm always amazed. Like, I, I, these are both sports illustrations. Sorry if you're not a sports person, but... But like I was thinking about rejoicing with those who rejoice and, and, and here's where I see me not be this way at all. I watch the NBA and, and I watch these guys who never play on the end of the bench and they are cheering when their teammates do something awesome and they're excited and they're dancing and they're high-fiving them and, and man, I'm not wired that way. Like I, I, if I'm not playing, even if I'm in the NBA, I'm sitting at the end of the bench thinking, man, I hope this guy is terrible because I want to be in the game. And that's the difference, right? Isn't that between me and Myers Leonard, to use a Blazer example? Like Myers Leonard in, in the basketball world has figured out what it should look like in the spiritual world. We're, we're excited when we see somebody else's success. We're excited when somebody is excited. We celebrate when they celebrate. We are joyful when they're joyful. That's what's on, on one side. 
rejoicing with those who rejoice. Also, I mean, mourning with those who mourn. Uh, this other, this, let me just give you another sports illustration. And uh, someday we're going to have TVs on this stage. We're working on it, and I'll be able to show you this video. It would be awesome, but right now we don't have the ability to do that. But there's this video that I see every now and then pop up on Instagram, and, and the video is in a state playoff high school baseball game. And, and the pitcher and the batter have been best friends since they were kids. And it's the last out of the game if the kid at the plate gets out. That's a tough situation to be in, right? And, and so the kid, the pitcher strikes the guy out. Uh, rough call kind of actually. And he strikes the guy out. And you see behind this pitcher, he, he kind of has a moment of like, yes. And then behind him, his, all of his teammates are dogpiling. And he walks directly to home plate. He embraces his friend. He sits there with him. I'm talking like 20, 30 seconds hugging him as the other kid is crying and, and he's comforting him. And then after it's done, he kind of pats him on the back and walks back and he celebrates with his teammates. That's a relationship. That's a connection where you're mourning with those who mourn. He, he should have been celebrating. You know, if it's just him and what he's done and all the success that he's feeling in that moment, I mean, that's just a moment to celebrate. But he was connected in such a way that he mourned with the person who was mourning. And then he went back with his teammates eventually. I think what Paul is saying is that church should be like that. When a guy's making the big shot, we should be celebrating what they're doing. And, and when somebody has struck out, we should be embracing them and, and helping them you know, recover, be comforted, all of those things. But most of us, I think, if we're, if we're being honest, are... are uh, we've not experienced that in church. I mean, church for too many people is just a, a group of people, like I said last week in the first sermon in the series, that get together, that, that hang out on a Sunday, that sing a few songs, that uh, maybe join a small group together. But our experience isn't one where, where when we are sad, not because we're calling somebody up and saying, hey, you should be sad with me, but just because they care, people are sad with us. And when we are excited, people are excited with us. Now, this is, this is a two-way street, right? And I said this last week, but my fear in all of these sermons is that we would look around and go, how come you're not more like that? I think we should be a church like that. And so when I'm sad, you be sad. And when I'm happy, you be happy. That's, that's the easy, the, the simple, the natural reaction is just to say, man, this church sucks. You know, like if only these people would figure this thing out. But the call is to us. We must be people who are willing to invest in and, and connect with people in such a way that when they're excited and they're sad, we feel those things. But we also must be people that allow for ourselves to be connected to in those ways. If you think that you'll have an incredible church experience, even here at Creekside, which I think is a very good church and does a lot of these things well. But if you think you, have, you will have an incredible church experience by showing up on Sundays and never doing anything else with anybody, singing songs, coming early, leaving early, or coming late, leaving early. Nobody would come early to this church. What am I talking about? Coming late, leaving early. Like, I mean, and you think that that will result in relationships that affect your life in a positive way, then you have another thing coming. What happens when you attend church like that is you attend that church for a while and then you think, man, I'm just not connecting here. And then you leave the church and go look for another church where you will connect. You might do that here. And if you do, I hope you'll remember this sermon and at the next church you will make an effort to be connected in such a way that you rejoice with those who rejoice and you mourn with those who mourn. 
Now, Paul, in the next verse, is going to use this word that the whole series is driven on. It's the Greek word, alelon, and it is a word that's used over 100 times in the New Testament. It's used in 94 New Testament verses. It's like the second half of the Bible. It's a word that Paul writes 60% of the time, and most of the time it talks about relationships in the church, and it translates, as you might have guessed, into the phrase, the English phrase, one another. In our series, we're looking at, at six verses that contain that little phrase, one another, and it's all about how we should interact, how we should do this thing called church, not how the pastor should do it, not how leaders should do it, not the structure of the church, not what we do when we get together, but how we that call ourselves part of a church should interact with, with one another. And so here's the million dollar question. What is the one another that makes us rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn? What is the one another that, that would allow for that to happen, that would lay the foundation, that would, that would be the groundwork for us to celebrate with those who are celebrating and, and mourn with those who are mourning? And here's what Paul says, Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Now, this is a... This is a decent translation and kind of getting to the the point uh, i mean if you're musical then you can kind of think about what a harmony is if you're not and it's a little bit uh, difficult of a translation but i think that the, the 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 words behind this greek translation live in harmony this is the one another i, I think they're actually better and, and when we kind of when we kind of just look a little deeper and say what is it what is it literally saying that it's important and this phrase live in harmony I just like this so much better. It's be of the same mind. It's what it literally means. It means like same in mind. Those are the words that kind of go together to do that. There's other verses in the New Testament that say very similar things. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 is one of those. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Here it is. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. It's really an interesting idea to be of one mind. And, and a lot of times what we think of is like thinking in the same way. And, and I think I've preached this. This is sad. I, I shouldn't tell you this. But I think I've preached on this language in the New Testament before of being of the same mind. And, and done a really poor job of explaining it. And, and, and I don't remember when those sermons were or anything. But I only know that because even as I was studying it to preach this sermon, I was still like, what does that really mean to be of the same mind? It obviously doesn't mean that we all think the same thing. That would be impossible. And it wouldn't be any fun either. I love, one of the things I love about church, one of the things I talk to about, uh, about church with my kids is, is how, like, how different everybody is, right? Like, we're all different. And I think a lot of us would look at the other people and say, man, they're kind of weird. But we still are here and we're connected. And, and it seems like there's a lot of people in this church who are representing this one-mindedness despite being different in theological nuances and political beliefs and, you know, economics and, and kind of family background and structure, all of those things. So it's clearly not thinking the same. It's clearly not being the same because that wouldn't work. And so what, what, what is it? What is it to be one mind? I mean, how do we take this command, this thing that we are supposed to do together, one another, and how do we actually put it into practice? Well, there's this really kind of cool nuance here that's not in the other verses where this same thing is said. And, uh, 
And, and the nuance is this. It actually says like, think the same, and then it's this, this little word, towards one another, unto one another. Now that begins to like give us a, a different idea, right? It's not just saying think the same things. It's saying think the same things towards one another. So what does it mean? I think it means something to the effect of we should display the same attitude towards all people regardless of social, ethnic, or economic status. That's one thing that's just so clear here. That's one way that people actually understand this verse at its core. Like we should think the same no matter who the other person is in our church. That's, that's hard in and of itself, right? I mean, it's hard not to look around and feel the same, to think the same about people that are vastly different in their interests than you, that are socially very different than you, that you have no real connection as far as interest towards. It's really difficult to have the same attitude towards those people as the guy that you go to church with, that, that you connect in every way with, that likes the Blazers and is into the same stuff and had a similar family background and makes the same kind of money. It's easier to do one of those things than the other, right? And so part of this surely is, is just having the same attitude towards, towards all people that you go to church with. That doesn't mean we're the best friends with everybody. That's stupid. You can't do that. Like it doesn't mean that, that every person is, is easiest is to connect with, but it means we have the same attitude towards them. And we'll talk about that in a second. And, and, and so the TEV translation, another translation, it says it this way, and I love this. I think this gets us more to like what it actually means to do this. Have the same concern for everyone. I like that. And then some in church history have just said, here's the real meaning, and I think this is really close. Think of others as well as you do of yourself. Now that's, that's harder, right? Like that, I mean like, well, I can dislike all of you equally. <laughs> like that's, that's pretty simple. Like, you know, if I just don't really connect with anybody, if I don't really care about anybody in a church, then, then I'll, I'll be able to fulfill this command if all, of, all it means is to have the same attitude towards all of them. But really at the heart of this is that we have the same attitude towards others as we do about ourselves. We have the same care. We have the same desire to see success. We have the same hopes for everybody else as we do for ourselves. I'll say it this way. Another author said, think about others as you would have them think about you. That's good. It's like a twist on the golden rule, right? Think about others as you would have them think about you. It's really easy to tell ourselves that we'll obey that golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, and what that oftentimes means is that we're just kind of passive. We don't bother people. We stay out of their way. We're not jerks. We're not mean. And in fact, like I think in my seventh grade math class, this is just popping into my head now, they actually twisted that to say don't do unto others as you wouldn't want them to do to you. And that's a lot of times how we, we apply the golden rule in our lives. But when we're talking about thinking about other people, as we would want them to think about ourselves, thinking the same as others, being of one mind with others, that changes us. Because when we start to care about people and have affection for people like we do for ourselves, it's going to play out in very real ways. If you look at every person in your church and say, man, I just want them to be so uh, like successful in their spiritual life. I want them to grow. I want them to love Jesus more and more all the time. 
It's impossible to just roll in here, sing a few songs, and go home without talking to anybody. You come here and you say, man, I would want somebody, this is what I'd want, I'd want somebody to talk to me today. So you talk to somebody. I would want somebody to ask me if there's anything I could pray for them about. And so you ask somebody if you could pray for them about anything. I would want somebody who saw me crying to walk up to me and say, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? And so you walk up to somebody when they're crying. You say, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? I would want people to be kind to me and excited to see me. And so you are kind to people and and at least you pretend to be excited to see them. (laughs) When we begin to think about others like we would want them to think about us, it kind of changes everything. It's like a game changer for churches. But that's just not true in most churches today. We hardly think about the other people at all. It's all driven by us. I say this a lot, and it's, you know, because I kind of grew up with this mentality, and I don't want my kids to grow up with this mentality. Always, we were always churchgoers. I'm really thankful for that. I always liked church for the most part. But the conversation we had after every Sunday, if you've gone to this church for any amount of time at all, you know this. It was always like, what did you think about the music and what did you think about the sermon? It was like we were, we were, the, we were like Simon, you know, on American Idol. Like, oh, they were pretty good today. Or I'll push the golden buzzer on the music or not, you know. I mean, depending on how we were feeling. What a horrible way to approach church. I don't get up here. I, don't, I literally don't care if you like my sermons. I have zero care about it. It's very nice of you to tell me you like them, but like that is so unimportant to me. You can absolutely hate my sermon, but if God's impacted you, then I, I'm so happy. You can say that was the stupidest, most boring sermon I've ever heard, and you leave here, and, and you're like, ma'am, I'm going to live differently, even though that guy was terrible today. Like, that's, that's great. I'll be super happy about that. Church is not here. Church doesn't exist so that you can kind of gauge how good it is. Church exists so you can be impacted. A gathering exists so you can be impacted. But church exists so that we can come together and we can do these one another's. And one of them is to think about each other as we would want to be thought about ourselves. And so when you roll in here, you, you should not be thinking, <laughs> is the music going to be good? Are they going to sing the songs I like? Is, the sermon, is he going to do a good job? Is his sermon illustration going to be stupid? I mean, how, what, what's going to happen? Am I going to like it or dislike it? You should be thinking about others. And you should be thinking about them how you would want them to think about you. That's how it should be. And I hope, man, I hope that we're a church that does that a little bit. I mean, like, I mean, sorry if you're new and I'm going to talk about you for just a second, but like somebody new walks in here, like, man, like, it's hard walking into a new church. It's uncomfortable. So how would you want them, how would you want people to think about you if you were walking into church for a first time? And what would that interaction look like? And what would you do for them? And then you just go do it for the new people. I don't know. I think that we've totally missed this. We've, we've made church this consumer-driven thing where we go to church like we go to a restaurant, right? Like we, we, sit, we gauge how well the waitress or waiter did by how much we tip them. We, we leave reviews online. And look up church reviews sometime on the internet. It's a joke. People have, I've, the chairs aren't comfortable enough and things like that, which is true at our church. So please don't leave that in a review. But, um, but man alive, how different would it be if we took seriously the call of Paul here and said, I'm going to think about others like I would want them to think 
about me. It's a huge command. Philippians 2.2 contains a verse that really helps us to see what this looks like in the real world. I'm going to read you Philippians 2.1-8. through 8. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. If you like Jesus, then make Paul's joy complete by being like-minded or of the same mind, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, to nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is a huge call, listen. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You might say, well, why should I be in it for others? I mean, America doesn't teach us that. I'm not wired that way. I mean, we're born selfish. Just get around a kid for a little while. We are born wanting stuff for us. So what changes me? Well, what changes you is becoming a Christian and understanding that the Jesus that we follow did this very thing. The gospel story is this. God looked down from heaven, saw that we were sinners, saw that we had done things wrong, saw that we had had done things that were regrettable, terrible, awful, against his nature and his will. And, And instead of looking down and saying, ah, I'll just blow it up and start again, he said, I'm going to come down there. He came down in the person of Jesus. He left, listen to this, he left the glory of heaven. And he came to this earth, and you know how many problems this earth has. You've had many things arise probably this morning that were no fun, not easy to deal with, struggle to get here, all that stuff. And he stepped into this mess, lived perfectly, never doing anything wrong. And at the end of that perfect life, he died on a cross for your sins. Rose again three days later and said, if you'll accept my gift of salvation, then you can be with me. You can live in eternity with me and all of your sins can be forgiven. You can have hope, peace, joy, and love. You can have a new life. That's God saying, I'm going to think about them and not myself, which is incredible because he's God. And he, not we, he has the right to think about only himself. But he didn't do it. And he becomes the perfect model. Jesus becomes the perfect model for how we ought to interact with one another. Saying, I will be of the same mind. I will think about you like I would want you to think about me. I will have your concern in my mind instead of just my concerns. And when we begin to do that, we will rejoice with people who rejoice. And we will mourn with people who mourn. Jesus did it. I mean, think about the life of Jesus. It's so easy for Jesus to come down here and say, I got a job and I'm going to die on a cross and that will save you, good luck. But that's not how he lived. He looked at the hurting and the broken and the struggling and the poor and and he, he felt for them. There's this word, compassion, that Jesus has on people frequently in the New Testament. Basically means to feel something in your bowels. He feels it. When he sees the people sad because his buddy Lazarus has died and everybody's mourning, he knows he's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. He could be happy. He could have a party. And it's the shortest verse in the New Testament. If you went to Sunday school, you probably know this. It says he wept. He wept. 
and we show up and we do church in such a way, it's like, what do I get out of it? When the one that we claim to follow, if we're Christians, said, I'm going to do what I can so that you get something out of it. Now, okay, ready? So that's this side. We'll make it this side right here. I think I flip-flopped my sides. But on this side, we have that. A life like Jesus. We have a life where, where we humbly serve one another, where we are doing our best to have the same concern for others that we have for ourselves. We're having, where we're doing our best to have the same concern for others, no matter you know, their background or their history, or their economic status, or how many stupid decisions they've made as we do ourselves, where we, are, where we are thinking about others like we think of ourselves. And then on this side, we have normal American church culture, right? I show up, I'm in it for myself. Uh, we have n- not even just church culture, we have normal American culture. I-, I don't talk to anybody about my problems unless it's maybe some therapist, but even that's hard to get to. And, and, and I, I'm going to stay at home alone and I'm going to spend every night watching TV without hanging out with people. And the older I get, the less I'll interact with others. And I really don't have any real friends. I just have acquaintances at this point because I'm not willing to share anything about myself and I don't really care about anybody else. And, and that's on this side. And here's what Paul's going to say he's going to say, here's the divider. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Pride. The barrier is pride. I said it before. The thing that stands in between one and one another, the thing that stands between me being isolated and doing everything for myself and and me being in it for the good of others, caring about people, actually caring about people, is this thing called pride. Pride is, I defined it this way a couple of years ago, it's just putting me over we. I mean, that's what pride is. It's just saying it's about me, it's about how I feel, it's about what I'm getting out of it, it's about what uh, I can accomplish, it's about who I am. It's, all, it's the eyes, right? It's me. It's me over we. And when we live filled with pride, filled with self-centeredness, filled with focus on, on me, then it is going to be impossible It's going to be impossible to go from one to one another. We'll never accomplish it until we deal with this thing called pride. We will never accomplish it. We we may try to climb over the barrier. We may drive around a lot like my family and I in Canada saying, maybe if there's another way around this thing, I'll just keep being prideful and maybe I can actually begin to think about people and and care about people and not just myself. But we're just going to run into a wall or we're going to get lost along the way. We have to deal with the pride if we are going to be of the same mind as one another. And here, Paul, I mean, I love this. He says, look, the the barrier is pride. You can't be proud. If you're proud, this will not work. It's just not going to happen. But then he gives us like two anecdotes to pride, which are pretty cool. He says, be willing to associate with people of low position and do not be conceited. Now, let me just say, there's a little controversy over the, the first meaning, uh, be willing to associate with people of low position. The actual, the, like the Greek language there, it's interesting. It, it doesn't actually say people. And, and so it might, it's one of two things, but both are true and both are seen other places in the Bible. It's either be willing to associate with people, uh, uh, people of low position or it's be willing to do jobs and tasks that are low, that are unimportant. Both those things are pretty good, Right? I think that Paul's first anecdote to pride is that we just are willing to hang out with people that, that, that are struggling, hurting, broken. And I would just say, if we could just take both of them, the other anecdote to pride at the beginning of this is just be willing to do 
the things that nobody else wants to do. Um, How radically different would the American church be if everybody took that mindset? Like, somebody's got to take out the garbage. I'm the guy for the job. Somebody has to deal with the trash at the church property. Well, that should be me. Somebody has to, I don't want to say any jobs that you're actually doing because I feel bad, like making your job lower, but like somebody going to stay here afterwards and make sure that there's no trash on the ground when we leave? It's going to be me. Like what if we all just had that mentality? Where would, I, I think, I think that the pride that stands between one and one another would start to deteriorate if we said, man, I'll hang out with anybody even if nobody else in society likes them and I'll do any job no matter how low it seems, no, how, no matter how unimportant that job seems. Now one of, the, one of the things I tell myself, one of my, I'm not really like a self-help, self-help guy, but if I, I have a couple statements that I go to, one's kind of new. Uh, did you see C.J. McCollum after his interview when they went, like, they played 54 minutes, and he said, I'm built for this. I've been saying that to myself when I'm having a bad day. I'm built for this. That's not the one that's important today. The one that's important today is never, never be um, too big for any job or too small for any job. And so I just tell myself, like, there's no job at this church that I'm too important to not do, and there's no job in, any, in the world. I, I kind of tell myself that. Like, I could step up to the plate and get whatever I need to get done done. If, you know, the world was going down, I'd run towards the action and, and say, what can I do to help? And so there, there should, I, I just don't think we should be people who, who say, I'm not going to do something because I'm above it. That's pride. But what's so cool about this, it's action-oriented, right? Paul's like, hey, if you have that pride problem, you're like, I'm too cool for that job. Just go do the job. Just start doing it. And then the pride will, will be overcome. Now, the other thing I think is so interesting is, is do not be conceited or, or do not think of yourself as wise. Uh, that's really interesting, man. My whole generation thinks of themselves as so incredibly wise. I mean, uh, all of my millennial brethren are like, we're wiser than our parents, and we're wiser than our grandparents, and we're wiser than everybody who ever lived in history. We're like so much, you know, if they were as smart as us, the world wouldn't be as messed up as it was. And, and man, when you think like that, it's going to be really hard to overcome the pride barrier. In fact, I just don't think we will. And then, and then what will happen is we'll never have relationships in church or without or outside of church where we move from one to one another. We will continue to be self-centered, driven by our wants and our desires because we'll constantly be saying, well, I'm just smarter than they are. We can't think of ourselves as wise. I love that. And so here's Paul. Here's Paul saying, look, there is this, there's this barrier that you have to get over. And what he doesn't, I love, it would be so easy to say, here's what you do. Here's, you just knock it, stop being prideful, right? Like, oh, okay, how do I, how do, I do that? What do I do? He's like, here's, here's two things, and we've made them three, kind of. Like, one, be willing to do any job. In fact, find low jobs to do within the ministry. Two, associate with the people who nobody else wants to associate with. And three, stop thinking of yourself as so wise. Say, I have a lot to learn. I need to grow. I need to, I need to talk to other people who are more wise than me. I need, I need the one another's of church because I need to know what they have to say. 
Now listen, this is in Romans 12, remember, at the beginning of Romans 12, he kind of tells us, I think, what's at the heart of all of it, Romans 12, 1 and 2, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And Paul is saying, look, here, here's the deal. You have to think differently than the world. You have to learn to think in a way that is more God-like. If you are going to put into practice all of these things that follow, including being of the same mind as one another. In fact, he uses these three words in this one verse right here at the end of our verse, verse 16. And, and all three of the words are the root word for think. He's saying you have to start to think differently if you're going to do this one another thing well. I, uh, my dad, uh, since his Father's Day, uh, he just retired from teaching. And I remember very early in his teaching career, he would show this, this uh video to his class and and i would watch it with him not in his class but at home it's a good movie i don't know the name of it and and you can find it later if you want to i'm sure by googling it but it was about this family that got stuck one on each side of the berlin wall and, and so this family uh wants to get to the other side and be with their relatives or whatever and and they uh conduct this plan and the plan is to build a hot air balloon. Has anybody seen this? Is this ringing any bell to anybody? Nobody. Uh, to build this hot air balloon out of like all the fabric they can get because they can get fabric. They're not going to get big machines. They're not going to knock the wall down, you know, running for it's not going to work very well. And so they make this hot air balloon and they, and they fly over the barrier and they land on the other side. And, and I think that, that what Paul says here is, is there's this barrier called pride. And the way we overcome it is by, is by rising above it and, and thinking more like God. We need to move our thinking up. We need to raise our thinking towards the thinking of God, who, remember, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant, as we read in Philippians 2. We need to be people who say, I'm going to do my best to think like God. I won't, I won't think I'm too big for any job or too cool to hang out with any person. I won't think myself wise. But instead, I will try to be humble and, and, and focused on others and, and look at God and say, man, if you sacrifice that much for me, then I should be willing to sacrifice. And I think that if we'll do that, if we'll take Paul seriously, then, then our, our minds will be elevated. And when we land, we'll land on the side of one another. Uh, the reality is for, for us that, that we're never going to be a great church unless we're in it for one another. But man, we can be stuck on this side. We can be stuck over here just in our own you know, stuff, thinking about ourselves all the time. But Paul, God through Paul is saying, elevate your thinking in order that you might rise above the pride and become a one another person, a person who thinks the same, who has the same concern for other people. I just want to, I just want to quickly just share a couple of uh, stories from my own personal life where I've where I've seen this done, and it's been really like life changing and important and impactful to me. Um, 
Uh, and the, both of these guys are pastors that did this for me. It's not the only people that have done this. But people that were just saying to, to, to show concern to me like they would want concern shown for themselves. The first is a guy named Jim Samra who I talk about a lot here. I talked about him last week in my sermon actually. He wrote a book called The Gift of Church. Man, read it. It's an incredible book. But uh, in that book, Jim talks about what church is and it radically changed my life. But here's what was more important to me. I sent him uh, an email because I made some connections out of that book that he hadn't included in the book. And I just said, hey, you know, like, did you think about this, basically? A few weeks later, I get a call from this guy. Pastor, very large church in Grand Rapids, written multiple books, way smarter than me. And he calls me. He just tells me, no, I didn't think about it. That's a great connection. I really appreciate that. He hangs up. I shoot him an email later and say, hey, I'm a new pastor. Can you, like, be my mentor? He says, yes. In the early days of my ministry, he'd call me every now and then, or I'd call him, and I would just run things by him and say, here's the deal. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to do about that. And he'd just stay on the phone with me and talk me through these things. Absolutely absolutely did not need to do that but pride did not stand in the way he didn't go i'm too good for this guy how this is what uh, most authors i feel like would have done how dare this guy try to come at my book like that and tell me i didn't think of something but jim's a guy that just over the pride and he said this is about one another and then and then man i was just thinking about this this week it, there's a, a very famous pastor uh named craig groeschel you've heard of him if you're in the church world the the bible app that you have on your phone that's uh craig groeschel's church that created that app for you and and uh i was uh newly diagnosed with ms and and a young pastor and my cousin named felicia she's in town right now she walks up to him after his church service uh, they had let me just tell you there was a hundred thousand people that attended their campuses online and in person on easter last year right so it's not like craig doesn't have anything to do on a sunday morning and my cousin felicia walks up to him hands her phone to him and says hey my cousin's a young pastor uh he has ms pretty recently diagnosed could you say something to him and he just like spends a minute talking to this phone saying hey this is a hard thing you're dealing with, but carry on. It's worth it to stay in the ministry, to keep doing this, to battle this. It's going to be hard certain days, but keep at it. Uh, I'll be praying for you. I don't know if he's prayed for me, but what? Like, there's no reason that he needs to move from here to here, right? But at some point in his life, and I really believe this about Craig and Jim, they just elevated their thinking and said, this isn't about me. This is about one another. I'm not too prideful for this. And both of those interactions, you can see by my eyes getting a little teary, were so important for me. And you can be that important interaction for others if you will move over pride, if you'll move from one to one another. Let me pray that you'll do that. Lord Jesus, I pray, man, I pray that this is a church that is so driven by the one another's. Lord, so many of my church experiences in the past were just me going, hanging out, Lord. Um, uh, not, not really involved, not connected to, partly my fault, probably partly the culture of the church's fault. Uh, but God, I, I just pray that we would not be that church. And Lord, I know that not every person will ever connect, and I know that we'll have people that show up late and leave early, God. And I know we'll have people that attend for a while and drift, but I pray just the culture of our church would be one of one another and not one would be one God where we are thinking in the same way about each other as we would have others think about us 
Lord, you know I'm bothered, like genuinely, deeply, passionately bothered by what the church has become in America. And God, I'd, I'd love to see the church in my lifetime be more like what you want it to be, less like a show that people show up to on a Sunday or once a week whenever, and more like a family as we talked about last week. And I think, man, one of the biggest barriers is our pride and one of the greatest changes that I would love to see, God, is that we would become of the same mind of the people in our church, and even God churches, godly churches, would be of the same mind of each other, Lord, caring about others. I pray that our church, Creekside Bible Church, the leaders in this church, we would have the same concern for the churches, and the other churches in our city, the other churches in our state, the other churches around the country, the other churches around the world, as we do for ourselves, God. That we would care that the other churches succeed, that they grow, that lives are changed and impacted, that they baptize people. I pray we'd have that concern for them, the same concern for them as we do ourselves, God. Because we, we would lessen our pride. And now nah, we wouldn't lessen our pride. We'd go above our pride, God, as we learn to think like you. I pray for every person who sits before me, God. I pray for those listening online, Lord. I pray that this morning you would challenge their hearts and you would move them at least a step, God, towards being people who do church for one another and not just for themselves, Lord. I think that is one of the hardest changes to make in, in how an individual, including myself, approaches church, goes to church. But I pray people this morning, God, would actually take a step forward and being in this thing for one another, of having the same mind, God, uh, of having the same concern for others. Work in hearts, God, change lives this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.